This is episode number 507 with Rob Trangucci, PhD candidate in statistics at the University of Michigan. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John Crone, a chief data scientist and best-selling author on deep learning. Each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today's episode with Rob Trangucci is absolutely epic. Over the course of his career, Rob has alternated between spells in education and industry. After attaining his MA in quantitative methods from Columbia University, he worked as a data scientist at a financial technology startup, and then as a statistician at Columbia, specifically in the lab of Andrew Gelman, who is himself perhaps the best-known statistician of our time. During that period at Columbia, Rob became a core developer on the open-source STAN project, a leading software library for drawing inferences from data using Bayesian statistics. Fascinated by deep, challenging, and important problems in Bayesian statistical research, Rob began his PhD in stats at the prestigious University of Michigan in 2017 and has been working on that since. If you haven't heard of Bayesian statistics before, today's episode will introduce you to what it is and why in many common situations it's uniquely powerful relative to other approaches to modeling data like machine learning and frequentist statistics. If you have heard of Bayesian stats, even if you're expert in it, today's episode is a rich resource on the centuries-old history of the approach, its strengths, its real-world applications, including to COVID epidemiology research, Rob's particular focus at the moment, the best software libraries for applying Bayesian statistics yourself, and the best resources out there for learning about Bayesian stats yourself. Near the end of the episode, Rob rounds the technical content off by detailing for us what life is like day-to-day for a PhD student in statistics at a top institution, why you might want to consider doing a stats PhD yourself, and the options that are available to you after you complete one. Today's episode is definitely on the technical side. We did our best to explain everything in an engaging and accessible way, but for long stretches, Rob gets deep into the theory and practice of Bayesian stats, which will definitely be easiest to follow along with if you have a working understanding of data distributions and data modeling. You ready for this epic and content-rich episode? Let's do it. Rob, welcome to the program. I'm so excited to catch up with you on air. Where in the world are you calling in from? Uh, it's great to be here, John. Uh, I am in La Crosse, Wisconsin, mm. um, which is sort of the um, westmost border of Wisconsin, right right against the Mississippi River, um, mm. which separates Minnesota from Wisconsin, um, maybe like two hours um, southeast of Minneapolis. Um, nice. And like... Yeah. And we're recording in summertime, so I imagine it's great there. It sounds like a kind of place that would be a really cold winter. Yes. Um, it is uh, typically has pretty bad winters. Um, we luckily avoided um, the winter um, when we uh, when we came to La Crosse. Um, we came sort of early March, but 
Um, yeah, it's the summers here are really beautiful. Um, the, the only, the only wrinkle was, and, um, you probably know this, but there were, there were wildfires in Canada, like North of Minnesota. And we were getting, um, smoke, um, from Canada through Minnesota and, and Wisconsin. Actually, it was just, didn't know about those. And it was, it was sort of like, it felt very dystopian because I was using my pandemic mask to, you know, uh, filter out the smoke from the wildfires. It was just like, you know, this is the world that we live in, but it was, um, it was, it was, uh, it was an interesting time. I know what it's like. I've gone through that. I lived in Singapore for 12 months. And at the time that I was there, there were fires which were started by farmers of peat in Indonesia. So Singapore borders Indonesia and they were burning peat to make room for for land, for growing things and cattle and whatever. But peat is like an extremely like dense carbon store. Mm-hmm. And so not only is it one of the worst possible things you could be burning for the environment, uh, it creates a lot of smoke. And so my first experience wearing a mask all the time was long before the COVID pandemic living in Singapore wow. in the smoke. So I know what that's like, yeah. but has that cleared up now? It's better? Yes, yes. Things are, it's, you know, um, when it's not raining, it happens to be raining today. It's, you know, blue skies, very sunny. Um, it's, it's a nice area. It's, nice. it's like being right on the Mississippi is sort of, um, it's very nice. Um, cool. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if I've ever been to the Mississippi anywhere in the U.S. Have you ever been to New Orleans? No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hear the jazz is good. Yeah. Um, it's, the it's jazz great. and the Mississippi. Um, so we've known each other for a long time. I think since about 2014, which is seven years ago, we met through a colleague of mine, Michael Silber. So at that time I was working at a company called Analect, which is the data science subsidiary of Omnicom, a giant media conglomerate in New York. And Michael was a product manager there, uh, based on a LinkedIn check that we did just before recording. It looks like Michael is now the lead product manager, actually, and you confirm this verbally because you stayed in touch with him, that he's the lead product manager at Product Hunt, which is a super cool company. If people have startups, you're definitely aware of Product Hunt because getting your consumer-facing startup product onto the front page of Product Hunt is a huge boon to the success of your tech startup. Um, So very cool job from Michael there. Um, I don't know if you want to tell us about how you know him or cool things you know about Product Hunt. <laughs> yeah, um, I uh, so Michael and I met um, in second grade um, at oh, wow. um, at summer camp. We were both going to wow. um, we were going to Riverbend summer camp um, in <laughs> in New Jersey, and mm-hmm. um, and then uh, then we both we went to. Um, uh, elementary school together. Um, and so we've been friends for a very long time wow. and I've sort of been able, very luckily been able to stay in touch, um, with my high school friends, um, sort of throughout college and, and afterwards. Um, and I think at the point where we met, um, we might have all still been living together in the financial district. In you know, New York City. I, I think that could be right. I think that yeah. he was introduced to me as your roommate. So yes. Yeah. Yeah. How times have changed. I guess he's it's in California crazy. now. Uh, no, no, he's, no? he's, he's, he's in Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. he is. Oh, okay. Yep. Um, and well, 
you've gone far away. And so, so you, so we'll talk about that. So you came to mind for me. Actually, I'd had you, I'd had you on my mind as an amazing guest for the Super Data Science Show when I took over right away from Kirill on January first. Um, so I created this kind of list of like, who do I know who would be a great guest on the show? And you came to mind because you have deep expertise in a fascinating area of data science, Bayesian statistics. So we're going to talk about what Bayesian stats is, how it compares with other statistical approaches, what its value is in the world, and how it allows us to solve problems in new ways. But <laughs> before we get to that, the thing that most immediately reminded me that I was like, oh, I should reach out to Rob and see if he wants to be a guest on the show is that you were doing a workshop on a Bayesian statistics software library called Stan back in June, I think it was. That's right. And yep. so that your name popped up in this email um, from uh, Jared Lander's company. So if folks were listening to episode 501, uh, we had Jared Lander on the show. So we mentioned how he runs a company called Lander Analytics. He also runs the Open Statistical Programming Meetup in New York. And I subscribed to both of those newsletters. And both of them, I mentioned the Stan workshop that was coming up and mentioned you by name, Rob, as one of the people who were running this workshop on Stan. And so you've been a core developer on the Stan project since 2014. Mm -hmm. How did you get involved with being a core developer on a library like this? So at the time, you were a uh, Columbia University statistician. You were working in Andrew Gelman's lab. So if people aren't aware with Andrew Gelman, perhaps the world's best known statistician and also talked about in a fair bit of detail in episode 501 with Jared Lander. So yeah, how did that, how, how does someone get involved in being a developer on a big open source project like this? I mean, I think it makes most sense to start with my grandfather's grandfather. Um, <laughs> no. uh, big open source developer, I remember. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I, um, I was at Columbia for my master's, um, and I took a course um, from Ben Goodrich um, at, uh, he was a, an instructor um, in, the, in the sort of master's program that I was at. Um, and it was my favorite course that I took in the master's program. It was um, called Missing Data, um, mm. which has sort of been a through line um, in, my, in my career. Um, and uh, it's connected to research that I'm doing right now. So, um, I, um, I left Columbia, I was working in a startup, I left that startup, um, and I was looking for something to do and I reached out to Ben. Um, and at that point, Stan was sort of in its infancy. Um, it was, um, sort of the, the brainchild of, um, Andrew Gelman, um, Bob Carpenter, Matt Hoffman, uh, Daniel Lee, um, Michael Betancourt, all of um, these uh, researchers at Columbia. Um, and it is, um, well, so I, I reached out to Ben. I was, I was looking for something to do. He had talked about this, um, this um, software package called Stan when I took his missing data course. Mm -hmm. And um, I, uh, I said, Hey, look, I've got, I've got time on my hands. I'd love to, I'd love to contribute. And he said, you know, I think, I think you could come in and work for Andrew, um, and work full time on the stand project. Is that something you'd be interested in? 
So I went to Columbia, I met with Andrew, I met with Daniel Lee, I met with Bob Carpenter. Um, and I loved the team. Um, I thought it was, you know, just a nice group of people. They were doing interesting stuff. And so I, I signed up. Um, wow. You may already have heard of Data Science Go, which is the conference run in California by Super Data Science. And you may also have heard of Data Science Go Virtual, the online conference we run several times per year. In order to help the Super Data Science community stay connected throughout the year, from wherever you happen to be on this wacky giant rock called planet Earth, we've now started running these virtual events every single month. You can find them at datasciencego.com slash connect. They're absolutely free. You can sign up at any time. And then once a month, we run an event where you will get to hear from a speaker, engage in a panel discussion, or an industry expert Q&A session. And critically, there are also speed networking sessions where you can meet like-minded data scientists from around the globe. This is a great way to stay up to date with industry trends, hear the latest from amazing speakers, meet peers, exchange details, and stay in touch with the community. So once again, these events run monthly. You can sign up at datasciencego.com connect. I'd love to connect with you there. So maybe not the most common way to get involved no. with an open source project no. <laughs> to work with, yeah, meet people in person, work. Yeah. I mean, to that, meeting people in person is probably one of the best ways to get involved with these kinds of things. So. You know, for example, in the New York area, the open statistical programming meetup that I already mentioned, this is a great way to meet people. I mean, certainly if you're in the New York area, once we're post pandemic and Jared is having meetups in person again, that is a great example of a community to come to and say, hey, you know, I have this level of experience in programming or in, you know, this kind of statistics or whatever your expertise is and to kind of stand up and just say, I would love to be contributing to open source projects. And there will be tons of people in that room who are working on them. And people are always looking for more contributors to those kinds of projects. So I think that the in-person route is totally viable. I don't actually, I haven't, you know, I, I haven't contributed to someone else's um, open source project in a meaningful way. So um, my guess is the other way to get involved is to be um, reviewing Git commits, um, submitting your own pull requests and Git, Yep. Um, I think often, like if you look at a major library like TensorFlow or PyTorch or Python or whatever, um, all of these are open source projects. Uh, there's often actually specific details on the README page of the GitHub as to how to get involved as a contributor. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say when um, when I first joined, I think the community was smaller. It's since grown a lot. Um, and um, both through the STAN forums, um, which is sort of one way to get information about STAN, um, where a lot of the developers are active and um, they respond to posts, uh, but also in, on GitHub. Um, and so I think a lot of, um, you know, even I think on GitHub, there are um, on the sort of issue um, issues page on GitHub, um, there are tags for sort of like, um, indicating what would be like a good first project. And there's really, there's no, you know, if you're interested in it um, and um, you can write C++ code or you want to learn how to write C++ code, um, you know, that's, that's a good way to, to get involved. 
Nice. And the reason why you mentioned C++ is because that's what underlies Stan. Specifically. That is what that is what underlies Stan. Yes. Um, so if you want to contribute to an open source project in general, you don't necessarily need to know C++. No. no. Um, but uh, but I, so I always think of Stan as something that we call from R. Yes. Yeah. So I'm. Um, you know, I start. I started to answer. Um, I started to talk about what Stan was um, a little bit earlier. But Stan is sort of both a um, statistical modeling language. It's like a domain-specific language for statistical modeling, um, and um, a suite of inference algorithms focused mainly on Bayesian inference, though there are frequentist inference algorithms um, included. Um, and so this is, like Stan itself is a um, collection of C++ libraries um, and some um, sort of uh, OCaml um, transpilers from like taking Stan code and compiling it down to C++ code. Mm -hmm. um, the way that, um, I, you know, most people interact with Stan and how I interact with Stan on a daily basis is through one of the interfaces. So right. uh, if you want to be able to, you know, write your programs, compile them and run them um, and get whatever results out that you want, um, you're going to use uh, the um, an R interface, um, either com uh, command stan R or um, R stan. There are uh, Python interfaces. I mean, there are, there are really uh, many different ways that you can um, you can interact with uh, with Stan um, via your sort of software of choice. Um, though the most common packages are or the most common routes are via R or via Python. Nice. And so I guess the reason why kind of in at its core in the guts, the reason why you would develop in C++ is because it's the most computationally efficient way. You can be, you can be so thoughtful about exactly how much memory a given variable is using up, for example. Yes, yes. Um, it is, uh, Stan manages its own memory. Um, you know, I, uh, without going into too much detail, the um, you know a lot of inference algorithms require um, gradient information, um, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, Stan is um, the, you know very computes gradients very quickly and has a bunch of specialized code um, geared towards statistical modeling, much like TensorFlow does. Um, mm -hmm. uh, that. Um, makes taking gradients of um, probability density functions fast. Um, and so that that algorithm is implemented in C++. Um, yeah, I think this is something that we should open up and talk about a little bit here as to what gradients are. We can just spend a couple minutes talking about that. So when we mention libraries like TensorFlow or PyTorch, a lot of people think of those libraries as a deep learning library because that's kind of what they became famous for um, they became famous because they made it easy to build the layers of an artificial neural network that makes up a deep learning um, uh, model. Um, but they also include functions that make it easy to um, differentiate that model uh, and train it. So this idea of differentiating comes from differential calculus, which is one of the main branches of calculus. And it's in calculating these differentials of a model that we get this gradient, which effectively just means the slope um, of a relationship between um, how wrong your model is 
at predicting the outcome that you'd like it to predict and the current model weights that your model has. So it's a slope, it's this relationship. And so you can basically, at any given point in time with your model, you can say, okay, based on the training data that I have and the model weights that I have and how wrong my model is, how can I adjust any one of my model weights? Well, you can use the gradient. You can say, okay, well, there's this slope. So if I increase this particular model weight out of the thousand or the million or the dozen um, model weights in my model, if I increase it, then my model will be more wrong. <laughs> so that's not the direction we want to go. We want to decrease um, this particular parameter of my model, and therefore my model will be less wrong at this particular point with these particular training data. Um, and so by iterating that over and over and over again, it allows um, models in a lot of different paradigms, including machine learning and Bayesian statistics, which we will talk about in detail shortly, uh, to learn. And if all of that sounded interesting, but you don't know much about it, I'm gonna plug something quickly for myself here, Rob. I, my apologies, but- That's um, okay, you don't have to apologize. <laughs> it, is, it is your podcast, so I think you, I think you can plug well, whatever but you it's, want. It's your episode. Okay, um, <laughs> And um, so, uh, but if you're interested in learning about gradients and the, the calculus that allows these gradients, you to compute these gradients and how these gradients allow machine learning models to learn and also allow machine, uh, Bayesian statistical models to learn, um, I have a calculus for machine learning course that we are, I'm rolling out every Wednesday on YouTube. I publish a new video to that course. It's on YouTube. Um, so yeah, so it won't be hard to find. We'll have it in the show notes. Um, anyway, so a big digression on gradients there, but they're just such a, I don't think I've talked, I haven't talked about gradients in detail on the show before. And they are, you know, they're at the core of so many models, so many models of learning. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I think it's a, it's a great description. Um, and something that I think people don't often think about, but should, um, because ultimately that is what makes, you know, makes learning happen, um, you know, for most algorithms. Um, and so it's good to, you know, understand what's going on below the hood. Um, yeah, that's the, yeah. I think there's a lot of people out there. I mean, that's why I've been creating this content on the mathematical foundations of machine learning, because I think there's a lot of people out there who get used to, uh, training a machine learning model in, um, you know, using scikit-learn or using a tool like Stan. And, um, and in the beginning, that's kind of satisfying. You're like, oh, this is, look at these amazing things I can do. Then you're like, why is this happening? <laughs> and it's kind of disconcerting. You're like, well, and if there's a problem, if the model doesn't train, is it because of something I don't know about how this works? And there's a good chance the answer is yes. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yep. Um, so, all right. So I think it's time. This is, this is the, there's gonna be a lot of exciting parts in this episode, but I think one of the most interesting, Rob, is gonna be explaining to the audience, and I can't wait to hear your description of what Bayesian statistics is. And you actually, you mentioned a term earlier, which now I feel like I'm probably mispronouncing. I always say frequentist statistics, mm. but you said frequentist statistics, and I've heard that before too. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that other branch of stats? What should we call it? I mean, look, it's, um, it is, you know, they, Bayesian statistics and frequentism, um, I think, answer different questions um, about um, the problem that you're facing. Um, and I tend to think that most problems are uh, best attacked via Bayesian inference, but there are good examples of problems that might be better through a frequentist lens. Um, uh, so frequentism, it typically asks, 
um, if I were to vary the data um, under some prescribed distribution, how would my estimates change? Um, and so you're thinking about hypothetical data sets, um, not necessarily the data set that you have in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, if you are um, you know, going to do a t-test or something, compute a p-value, um, you have some null model that you're, uh, you know, you're measuring um, your statistic against. You're really mm-hmm. measuring the um, distribution of the statistic under the null model against the statistic that you do observe. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you can, you know, essentially compute that p-value, which is just um, under the null model, what's the probability of observing a statistic that's at least as large as what I have observed. Um, mm-hmm. And it's um, sort of a way to reject this hypothesis that your model is the null model. Um, mm-hmm. And that's often not what people want. People want, okay, you know, what is the probability of um, my parameter being in a certain um, uh, interval based on the data I have? Um, and that's, as I think, a very natural question to ask. And that's what Bayesian free or uh, Bayesian inference allows you to do. Um, and now it comes at the, a cost. Um, there are two, I think, two primary costs. Although I would argue one is a benefit, uh, but it's often framed as a cost. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you sort of you can't get these these probability statements for free. You have to assume something about um, your parameter space. Um, before you observe your data, you have to essentially, you know, put your beliefs about the parameter into or quantify your beliefs about the parameter using a probability distribution. Um, and then, then you observe your data and then given your data and your prior beliefs about that parameter, um, you get a posterior, you sort of update your beliefs about the parameter space. Um, and so sometimes people say, okay, well, I want to let the data speak for themselves. Um, and I think in theory, that's a, a great um, sentiment, but um, often we have information about the parameter space, you know, even if we don't think we do. Um, mm-hmm. Like a good example is um, in a regression problem, um, if you have, uh, let's say, centered and scaled all your predictors, um, know pretty well that you're not going to have a regression coefficient that is um, 10 to the 5 or order 10 to the 5. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and so you can encode that sort of information in your prior. Um, the second downside of Bayesian inference is computation often um, mm-hmm. because the class of models for which, you know, everything I described, you know, you um, have a prior distribution, you observe some data, you get a, a, a sort of updated set of beliefs after you observe the data. Um, that, uh, that sort of computation, um, which is really the calculus of probability, um, the class of models for which we can do that in a closed form is very small. That's um, something called uh, conjugate, conjugate priors. Um, and, uh, and so um, most of the time, if you have sort of a, um, you know, a, just sort of an arbitrary prior, an arbitrary likelihood, there's no closed form solution for the, the posterior. Um, and so you'll need to, ideally, you'd like to, you'd like to sample um, 
or a, a way to um, uh, compute um, quantities of interest uh, from your from your posterior distribution is to um, uh, is to sample from your posterior and then compute expectations. Um, and um, I've been I've been talking for a little bit, so I <laughs> you should uh, you can stop. No, it's me. all been it's yeah. all been perfect. So okay. the so yeah, you, so you talk about these two supposed limitations of mm. um, Bayesian statistics versus actually my original question, which was was just it was a much simpler question. So you answered the question that I was going to ask right after, okay. which is yeah. what's the difference between Bay Bayesian stats and other approaches? Um, but I specifically like the main other approach that I was going to have us compare against was the other big branch of stats. Which I pronounce frequentist, and you pronounce frequentist. <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah. first, what's your? I mean, so let's I, answer I, that question, and then I have sure. More for you. I, I would. I mean, I have heard um, people say frequentism, um, uh, but I don't know. Um, maybe in Canada, people um, have a different. <laughs> appetite. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how many Bayesians I've ever met in Canada. Or there, or I think there are a lot of reasons. I'm sure there are, but yeah. I act, I yeah, I did most of my education abroad. I, so maybe it's a British thing. Maybe frequentist frequentism is a British uh, sounding thing that I picked up. But anyway, that could be. Yeah. I think people always know what you're talking about. Anyway, uh, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, so then you answered the question I was going to ask after, which is about you know what is Bayesian statistics and maybe compare it with um, frequentism frequentism. Uh, so. There's a historical thing which I think is interesting that we can bring into the picture here, which is that Bayesian statistics is a lot older than the frequentist approach. So I can't remember the exact dates, but it's something like the late 18th century or maybe even the early 18th century. Um, a he was like a religious leader. I mean, I guess a lot of educated people at that time they were like the the priest locally. Uh, but his name was Bayes, Thomas Bayes, I think. Mm -hmm. And so Thomas Bayes came up with a formula that was kind of, um, you know, it's like, I guess, the earliest known um, equation of what you described in more detail now that has been generalized by people since, which is this idea of having some prior belief and then using data to update that prior belief, which is going to be a number, <laughs> In Bayesian statistics, to some posterior value, which and then you can use that posterior value to uh, to make decisions confidently, to know the world a little bit better. Um, now, interestingly, so there are no photos of Thomas Bayes or paintings. Obviously, there's no photos. <laughs> <laughs> we have no known. Yeah. Uh, nobody knows what he looked like, uh, but because uh, I tried to put him in a deck and I couldn't, there was no way for me to do that. Um, yeah. So I picked. Uh, Laplace, who had done that's, a lot of work, right? Yeah, that's what that's what I was gonna say. I and I my um, uh, I don't know the the background, the historical background, super well, but I do know that Laplace um, made a lot of contributions. Sort of took Bayesianism from this sort of you know um, spark of an idea um, to make it um, uh, more workable. Um, Exactly. Method. He generalized it from just like one equation to this kind of, to a generalized equation, I guess, or kind of, yeah, a, a, you know, a, a body of statistical ideas, a way of um, making confident quantitative inferences about things we observe in the world. 
And so yeah, Pierre Simon Laplace, he was a Frenchman and he was a polymath as like a lot of these kind of people were at that time making big contributions. And so he, um, yeah, so he, he kind of popularized this idea. And then for about a century, it was the leading way. So this Bayesian statistical approach that Laplace popularized was the leading way of trying to make thoughtful quantitative inferences about things that we observe in the world with data. But then in the early 20th century, um, it fell out of fashion. And I think in large part because of these things that you mentioned. So these two drawbacks a century ago in the early 20th century were a big problem. So, so first the compute thing. So you had to do everything by hand. <laughs> so the big, the large compute associated with um, Bayesian statistics was a pain in the butt, I guess then, because you're like, ah, more pencils. I can't. We're I running can't. out of all the pencils. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I don't even know if they use pencils then. We're running out of feathers. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Feathers and ink. Um, but then the other thing was this idea of a prior making people kind of feeling icky. So like R.A. Fisher um, a century ago was like, no, we can't have this in here. It's unobjective. You know, where people are coming up with, you know, you can't start off ob objectively observing data if we're having these prior beliefs in advance. Um, so I don't know. Now I've been talking for a while. I feel like I should give you a chance. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, um, it, there's an interesting dichotomy between, between the two disciplines. Um, and, um, but they, you know, I do think that they, they answer two different questions. So one yeah. of, you know, one is this, one is this thing like, what is the probability that my parameter is in this interval? Um, the other is um, uh, based on the sort of hypothetical distribution of the data. Um, what are the family of intervals that I yeah. could observe? Um, and, but, you know, ultimately, um, uh, you know, I, th I think Bayesian inference, a, a, a benefit is potentially decision-making. Um, and I think that is, that's, I think, just a general um, uh, area that um, it was very in, in fashion in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and then it sort of got picked up by the, like, economists and um, statisticians for some reason. Um, you know, certain statisticians were very into decision theory. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's an area where statistics could, you know, continue to make important contributions to the world. Um, and I think there's a real opportunity for, for that. And it's, it's not necessarily new ideas. It's just um, re-teaching, re rehashing yeah. um, things that are for sure. already. Yeah. And so, so because of this kind of, of, of people like R.A. Fisher, hugely influential statisticians a century ago, poo-pooing this idea of prior information and maybe this pain about compute. If you learn statistics in university in the 20th century, certainly the latter half of the 20th century, um, or almost certainly even in the 21st century, mm -hmm. everybody learns when you when you take if you're if you've done a psychology degree or a biology degree or a chemistry degree or a physics degree, an engineering degree, when you take your stats 101, probably all the way through to like your third year, maybe fourth year stats classes as an undergrad, you study exclusively 
this frequentist approach, frequentist yeah. approach. And, um, and so there's two, so, so going back to your two big issues, the latter one, the compute one, every passing year, that's half of the issue it was <laughs> the year before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this exponential decrease in compute cost means that, you know, we don't have to worry about compute nearly as much. You, you still do, uh, but it's less and less of a problem all the time. Um, and then the, the issue of the prior, I mean, I guess this is kind of like, a, it's more of a philosophical debate than like a technological debate. But the prior in Bayesian statistics, to say that, well, there's that assumption that we make and it's a problem, there's so many assumptions in frequentist statistics sure. anyway. So yes. what distribution you're using, the assumptions you're making about this sure. theoretically unknown and unobservable population distribution that you can never measure, that you're just assuming exists. So you have all these assumptions baked into frequentist stats anyway. Yeah. And That's even true. the arbitrariness of a 0.05 threshold, especially when we have lots of observations that we're making, frequentist statistics has tons of assumptions anyway. So, okay, we, you know, we're making some anyway, why not a prior? And one of the cool things about a prior that you can do and kind of make it uninformative anyway is so you can sample from a uniform distribution over a broad and like reasonable range, or maybe you even have other ideas, but there's ways that you can make these priors uninformative. And please do let me know better ways than what I just described for doing it. No, no, yeah. I mean, um, you know, I would say that um, an uninformative prior in one parameter space is an informative prior in a different parameter space. Um, and right. so, um, you know, there, I would argue that it's, it's rare that you can really have a totally uninformative prior. Um, and I would also maybe argue that you might not want to just because, um, yeah. uh, you know, you, you typically do know, you know, a reasonable range for things and you don't want to, you don't want to be too doctrinaire and say, I don't think that this parameter can be any larger than 10 or any smaller than minus 10, you know, and essentially put boundaries um, on your parameter unless there are extremely good reasons to do so. Right. Um, because if you're wrong and the parameter is 11, <laughs> you won't ever learn it. Um, and so right. you, you sort of want to, you want to have like a soft constraint. You want to, you know, your prior should put, I don't know, you know, 99% of the sort of probability mass between two points. But, you know, there's, there are tales where you can be wrong. Um, that makes perfect still sense. Still learn something. Now, something that I've been dying to bring up, and I'd love to hear if you feel the same way about this, because you know a lot more nuance about this than me. But this idea of starting with maybe an arbitrary value or maybe a meaningful value. But in, in machine learning, we start with typically a, a random value from sample from a distribution. So if we're, um, when we create a neural network, a deep learning network, let's say we have a million parameters in our neural network that we want to be able to learn. Well, we initialize those million parameters with random values, hmm. like a prior. They're like a prior, we don't call them a prior, but you start with this randomly initialized value and to get those randomly initialized values, uh, the typical thing in machine learning is to randomly sample from a distribution. So maybe if it's a deep learning network, then we'll sample from a Hay distribution um, or 
a Lacun distribution or something like this, um, Glorot distribution. So you have these, you know, these particular kinds of distributions that you can sample from that will give you reasonable um, starting values um, for your for your right. initial values right. for your machine learning model, which yeah. you know in a, the Bayesian world we could call a prior. And then you use training data to update those parameter values and one and when your model has stopped learning when it no longer is uh, learning on um, validation data that are outside of your training data site we say okay my machine learning model my deep learning model say has finished learning and then you have these final model weights that are like a posterior in Bayesian stats and you can use those for production inference so did I just say a whole bunch of things that make you feel really uncomfortable or is there truly this kind of parallel between Bayesian statistics and machine learning? Uh, I am <laughs> gonna, I'm gonna have to disagree a little bit. Um, All right, great, because, I'm glad. But yeah, I mean, look, I, and I, this is not my area, like I don't know very much about neural nets um, or deep learning. Um, mm -hmm. What I do know is that the um, sort of objective function can be super multimodal. Um, and often you're finding, you know, a good um, local minima, minimum um, of this super high dimensional. Um, Rob, Rob, Rob. I only ever find the global minimum. The global, I never, sure. I've never yeah. gotten stuck in a local minimum. So but carry on. So, yes. <laughs> um, so I, uh, so I feel like, you know, the starting values, um, you are sort of localizing yourself to one of these modes. Um, and so uh, in that sense, it is a bit like a prior, but um, I would argue that it's more like a regularizing um, uh, problem and less like a posture because you're just, you get a point value. Um, and right. I mean, you know, something like the sort of key to Asian inference and a, a big difference than compared to frequentism, frequentism, you, you pick a point you're going to get a, a point in the parameter space that if you're doing maximum likelihood, um, that maximizes the likelihood function of the observed data. Um, and with Bayesian inference, you need the distribution. You want all the parameter points that are consistent with the data you've observed and your prior, sort of weighted correctly um, via, via Bayes rule. Um, and um, uh, this is this is something that Michael Betancourt talks about a lot. Um, a uh, stand developer um, and uh, someone who thinks a lot about um, uh, the differential geometry of um, of posteriors and and sort of how there's the algorithm that Stan uses is called Hamiltonian Monte Carlo, and it's a variant of that. And we can talk about that a little bit later. But he's done a lot of thinking about the differential geometry of this algorithm. Um, and, uh, and so something that he often says is that there's, you know, you need to quantify a distribution and that's different than just picking a point. And so mm -hmm. I think in your, in your example, you're mm -hmm. going to get a point out. Um, but the Bayesian would want the, yeah. the full distribution that is very hard, um, with a neural net because it's, it's multimodal. And so, um, it's, you either need, and this is where I'm. Right now, I'm sort of out of my depth. I don't know very much about. I know that there is Bayesian deep learning, um, and uh, it sounds very hard to me because you know. Yeah, you, yeah, 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 yeah. And I guess that's like a, 
Yeah, I'm, you're totally right. And that is that is a huge distinction. I guess like, hopefully, yeah. I mean, you're completely right that in, in Bayesian stats, and that is, I've made a huge note here to make sure I emphasize this in uh, my outro to the episode, that you know there is this big difference between using a single, what you call the point value, a single number as both the initialized weight in the machine learning model, as well as the weight that we have come out of it, that we've learned and that we can use in a production model. With Bayesian stats, you have that the prior value is a distribution, and after training, you come out with a distribution. So it's this whole other dimension of richness yep. um, that, that doesn't happen in machine learning, notwithstanding, um, as you mentioned, there are people who work on Bayesian machine learning, like yep. Bayesian deep learning as a specific subfield of that. Um, so that is, yeah, definitely a big difference. Um, though maybe me talking about it in that way, the parallels, hopefully, maybe if you're familiar with machine learning, maybe it kind of gives an idea, a picture of, of how a Bayesian model trains. Oh, well, not really how it trains, but uh, yeah. kind of how it proceeds. Um, and I'm actually really glad to have had this conversation because I, I think I, I, I make too, I think I have been making too many parallels between Bayesian stats and machine learning that I will now be more careful about. Um, a word that you used a couple of times there that I'd love to understand better and that our audience might love to understand better as well is you said that machine learning is multimodal or deep learning is multimodal. What do you mean by that? Um, so I mean that when um, you look at the, um, let's say like the training error or something um, as a function of the parameter values of your sort of neural network weights, um, there are many points in the parameter space that uh, minimize um, the training error or the validation right, error. And, right, um, right. The, um, and they're sort of pretty much equivalent um, in terms of the value of the objective. Um, right. And so um, those are, they're, it's, it's hard to sample from a multimodal distribution. It's hard to optimize a multimodal distribution because, um, I mean, one of the, the things that we talked about earlier is gradients, right? So gradients mm -hmm. are local information. Um, you just know at the point that I'm at right now in the parameter space, how does the objective function change locally? If you remember your calculus course, um, mm -hmm. it's you know, dy, dx, and those are like infinitesimal mm -hmm. values. Um, but you sort of want global information. You want to know what is the, what is the global maximum. And so... Um, if you just picture like a sort of a, a distribution of two, two humps or something, mm -hmm. um, you can use an algorithm to find the, the mode, um, one of the modes, mm -hmm. the mode is one of these peaks, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, uh, and your algorithm will stop modal. there and you'll, yes. So you, um, you know, you, your, your algorithm is going to run until, um, it finds that the gradient is about zero. Mm -hmm. Um, and that'll indicate that you've reached the maximum, um, and, and it will terminate and you'll never know that there was this other, this other mode that you missed. Mm -hmm. it's, and it's, it's this other set of parameter values that maybe leads to a lower, you know, validation error or training right. set error. Right. Um, and, um, and I'm, I'm not up on the latest deep learning research. My understanding is that these are like. Um, you know, um, multi, multi, multimodal, um, objective functions and that 
most modes are, you know, about the same. Um, it doesn't seem to matter too much. Yeah. What modes are. It's yeah. So you can, there are just so many parameters in a typical yeah. deep learning model that, uh, every time you initialize and then randomly sample from your data set to train the model with stochastic gradient descent, just which mm. stochastic just means that we're randomly sampling gradient data points, we will end up with yeah every single time it's going to you're going to end up with a different set of parameter values that solves the problem to roughly the same extent, <laughs> like you get roughly the same um, cost on your validation data set. You minimize it to the same level, so like, like you're saying there. So uh, there are, yeah, I don't like infinite. Probably isn't the right word, but like maybe like approaching an infinite number of ways that this million parameter net neural net can solve a problem, and that's what I guess that's, that's kind of what you're getting to with this multimodal idea. Is that so? Yeah, the mode just being a peak of a distribution. Um, so if you think of a a distribution with just one peak, uh, then the mode is a good uh, estimate of uh, the average alongside your mean or your median. Um, but you can have a distribution can have multiple modes. It doesn't have to have just one peak. And the uh, the techniques that we use, the gradient descent technique that predominates in machine learning, including in deep learning will get trapped in, can get trapped in one mode arbitrarily. Um, and so we often, yeah, there's there's kind of ways around this and there's ways that you, you can retrain your model again. And, and but, but basically because of what you're describing with it being this massively multimodal space, um, you can end up converging on an optimal parameter space um, despite the presence of all these, these these different uh, these different modes. So, yeah. so you mentioned uh, okay. All right, we've gone really deep. I'm, unless you have something else specific to say about that, well, I might pull so, it a little bit. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I'm going to say that um, in like one and two dimensions, the mode can be sort of like a good description of where the sort of probability mass lies. Um, right. Uh, but. When you get into higher dimensions, that's sometimes not the case. Um, like if you look at, and this is again, I'm parroting Michael Betancourt, who has done, he's written a lot of great stuff about um, high dimensional um, probability distributions, sampling from high dimensional probability distributions. But um, if you think about like a normal distribution um, in many dimensions, um, uh, Rob, how, how many dimensions can you visualize in? <laughs> uh, I have three. Um, <laughs> we're talking more more than uh, more than I'm able to actually visualize. Um, uh, I'll just sort of use uh, a term that I don't like so much, but um, it it turns out that um, uh, the the most of the mass of the distribution, which is which is really like when I'm talking about mass, I'm talking about like the integral over. The density, the normal density, times this differential volume element, um, and so these two quantities—the density and the differential volume element—sort of um, uh, play against each other. Um, and so the it, you know if you think about a normal distribution, it's peaked, like the the density is peaked around zero. And that's true as you increase dimensions, uh, but the volume grows um, 
much faster than than the density decays. And so it turns out that the the most of the mass of the probability a distribution of a multidimensional normal distribution is sort of in a shell, like a thin shell. Um, and so, uh, wow. so like, it, you know, it, you can get the mode can be a bad um, description of a distribution because that's just dealing with the density. Uh, so like as Bayesians were interested in computing expectation of expectations of functions of the posterior or of, of the parameter values with respect to the posterior. Um, What's the posterior mean of a parameter? What's the posterior standard deviation of a parameter? Um, and, uh, and so these expectations, these are integrals um, across the entire uh, parameter space against um, this density. And so we, we need to quantify um, areas of high probability mass, which necess it necessitates exploring um, all of the probability distribution. I re ideally focusing on areas of high mass because those are going to be the biggest contributors to your expectation values. Again, I am, um, this is really nothing new. It is, this is, um, a Michael Betancourt special. Um, and I will, you know, I'll, I'll send a, a paper, um, uh, to you, John, um, perfect. that maybe the, um, yeah, we'll put it uh, in the show notes. People could check out. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Amazing, Rob. So, when I'm talking to you about topics like this, it's really humbling because it shows me how much more I have to learn. Um, but that was a beautiful description of what we're trying to achieve with Bayesian statistics. So let's talk specifically now about the STAN package. So first, does STAN stand for anything, or is it just kind of like, it's kind of got statistics is the first three letters, and that's kind of how I think about it. Do you know anything about why it's named Stan? Yeah, it's it's um, it's not an acronym. It's named um, after a physicist um, who worked uh, on, um, in Los Alamos, um, who sort of invented the Monte Carlo method. Um, mm. um, earlier I mentioned that it's, it's you know, we, we want to take expectations. These are integrals. We often don't know the probability distribution because we have some arbitrary prior, arbitrary posterior. Um, and so in order to compute these integrals, we need to use the Monte Carlo estimator for these um, integrals. Um, and so it's named for um, Stanislaw Ulam, um, or mm -hmm. Ulam. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so it's Stan is just the first part of his um, cool. his name. Yeah, I didn't know that. Um, so we talked about uh, Monte Carlo very briefly in episode four ninety nine with Bar Moses because their company is called Monte Carlo. But we actually we didn't. I I barely went into any detail about it because that was that her company doesn't actually have anything specifically to do with Monte Carlo methods. Um, so maybe you could tell us just, you know, a couple sentences about this idea. I know, you know, as a, the name Monte Carlo comes from the idea of like a casino, like hmm. roulette tables or rolling the dice. Like it's like that we're, you know, we're getting these kind of random probabilities, but maybe add a bit more color for us. Yeah. So, um, so let's, let's say you have, um, an integral and you want to compute and you have some distribution. Um, that has a density function um, that you know to get the to get the the um, expected value for um, uh, 
for a you know random variable that's distributed according to this distribution, you have to do an integral. Um, and so um, uh, we can't do most integrals. They're just, they're very complicated. Um, so, um, but we can, if we can sample from that distribution, um, we can use just the simple average of samples from that distribution um, to get an estimate for the, this integral that we, that we want. Um, and if we want um, some, um, you know, uh, the expectation of a function of um, this uh, in random variable, we just sample from the distribution, take the function value of each draw, um, and then just take the average of that. Um, and, uh, and so that's sort of like um, a law of large numbers um, uh, result that, you know, as the number of samples that you get diverges, goes to infinity, your estimate, this average sample average will mm -hmm. converge to the expected value. Um, and, um, yeah, so that's, it's, it's, um, it sort of undergirds, you know, most, um, of the modern methods in Bayesian statistics, um, for sort of exact generating, um, doing sort of exact inference. There are a lot of approximate inference methods, like variational Bayesian inference, um, expectation propagation. Those are different, um, different methods that don't, um, they sort of take uh, this sampling problem, they turn it into an optimization problem. Um, and that is, um, but, you know, you trade, you trade some, uh, some fidelity for that, um, for that trade. Got it. So when I first started learning about Bayesian stats at the beginning of my PhD, so this was like 2007, 2008. Yep. The, the, only software library that anybody mentioned to me for doing this, uh, for doing Bayesian inferencing was bugs. <laughs> yes. Yep. And bugs only ran on Windows as far as I can yeah. remember at that time. Yeah. And it was called WinBugs. And yep. so I had to, I had a Mac as I've had for a very long time, a Unix based operating system. And so I had to like dual boot Windows on this box yeah. uh, to get WinBugs running. Have you ever used WinBugs? I have not. Um, <laughs> I have. I think I've used Jags, which is um, like a non-Windows native um, implementation of Bugs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, stands for Bayesian inference using Gib sampling. Um, that's Bugs, and then Jags is just another Gib sampler. I think. Um, right. And, you know, look, these were, these were tools that allowed people to do inference on models that, um, you know, they hadn't been able to do inference on before. Um, uh, but um, they sort of exhibit some pathologies um, <laughs> and went like for certain problems that are very common, um, for instance, hierarchical models, um, mm -hmm. it can be, um, you know, I, I sort of mentioned um, that uh, as the number of samples 
grows to infinity, you get the sort of right answer with your Monte Carlo estimator for the for the um, expected value. Mm-hmm. Um, and the question is like how how close or you know how many samples do you really need to accurately quantify this expected value? And mm-hmm. it turns out that for some problems, the Gibbs sampler, you know, you just won't ever get enough samples. Like mm-hmm. we can't run computers for infinite amounts of time. We have to stop them at some point. Mm-hmm. We're always getting approximations to this um, to this expectation value that we're looking for, um, and so uh, Gibbs sampler is sometimes would you know need to be run for millions and millions and millions of iterations to still not be very close to getting you know good right. answers. Um, ah, cool. And so yeah, so whether we're talking about bugs or jags, the GS at the end of those acronyms is this Gibbs sampler. And so I think you mentioned earlier in this episode a an alternate approach to give sampling, which uh, you said Hamiltonian, right? And mm-hmm. so that's kind of what the basis of Stan is. Yep. So um, I guess it's going to be unavoidable to get into some level of technical yeah. detail, but um, this, this Hamiltonian sampler allows us to converge with more reasonable sample sizes than infinite <laughs> or millions yeah. like we have with Gibbs. Yeah. On um, yeah, on some expect on an expected value that uh, approximates, you know, what it would be uh, if we could sample infinitely um, yeah. as we converge on infinity. Um, so tell us about that. Tell us about Hamiltonian in general, and that also that reminds me. I think is that related to this idea of a no U-turn sampler? Yes. Or, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. So that um, Hamiltonian Monte Carlo was, I think, invented in like molecular um, dynamics for um, uh, generating um, like samples of molecular dynamics um, to quantify. Because they follow a Hamiltonian process. Like it's like something like if you follow like how a speck of dust moves on the top of the surface of water, it follows Hamiltonian motion. It's a it's a particular kind of randomness, right? Yes. I, I think so. That sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, so all so that Hamiltonian Monte Carlo became much more well known to the stats world because Radford Neal at um, at U Toronto um, wrote a paper about it. I think he was using it um, in his thesis about Bayesian neural networks um, to sample from um, the posture for these neural networks, um, but. And so Hamiltonian Monte Carlo is a way of using um, gradient information to help you explore this posture distribution better. You have to find areas of high mass. um, And it turns out that Hamiltonian Monte Carlo can do that. Um, And there are uh, papers about it. Again, stuff that Michael Betancourt has has written is really um, good for understanding that sort of thing. Um, but it turns out that Hamiltonian Monte Carlo has a lot of tuning parameters, um, and uh, they're hard to set. So, mm. um, so a lot of you know, a lot of hand tuning went into um, Hamiltonian Monte Carlo, and um, and sort of Matt Hoffman and um, Andrew Gelman at Columbia um, wrote this paper called the No U-Turn Sampler, which was sort of an adaptive variant of of um, Hamiltonian Monte Carlo. Um, it included two um, important contributions. Um, uh, you know, the 
without getting into too much detail, um, Hamiltonian Monte Carlo involves solving, um, approximately solving differential equations, partial differential equations. So you are, um, you're doing numerical integration. Um, and so a question that you have to answer when you're doing numerical integration is how big is your sort of like discretization step and how many steps do you run um, to get to essentially solve your, your partial differential equations. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, and so the, uh, no U-turn sampler, um, paper did two things. It, it was able to, um, uh, sort of adaptively set the, um, discretization step size, um, and, uh, sort of like in, uh, what's called warm up or in Gibbs sampling burn in, um, phase. And then, um, and then sort of it, uh, will adaptively set the integration steps, the number of integration steps. It, it essentially, um, waits until the sampler is going to do a U-turn and then it terminates and it sort of samples uniformly from this, um, this path that is generated. I mean, it turns out that this is a very robust way to sample hmm. distributions and it, it really opened up a whole world of um, models that were not fittable um, to um, in, in Bayesian stats. Um, and, um, and it, you know, we're still, um, you know, sort of learning the limits of this algorithm. Cool. Um, it's, it's very powerful. Um, and that's sort of like Stan's bread and butter is implementing the no U, the no U-turn sampler. Um, which it's nuts for short. Nuts for say short. It. it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's, uh, it, it has like, um, Stan's implementation has changed over the years. Um, but, uh, you know, sort of, um, to be more robust and to be faster. Um, and, um, but it's, it's, it's great. I use it a lot in my research. Um, what my applied research, a lot of it is using Stan, um, and I think a lot of people, a lot of researchers, a lot of companies use it. Um, and so, yeah. Nice. So let's jump to that next. Well, okay. almost. Okay. <laughs> so I want to talk about applications, your work sure. in particular, and like when we might want to use Bayesian stats. Let's get yeah. to that. But first, quick thing, just to kind of like sum up this idea of nuts sampling, of no U-turn sampling. I guess with other Hamiltonian Monte Carlo approaches or with um, Gibbs sampling, certainly, Maybe this is part of why the Gibbs sampling ends up needing infinitely. You can't you can't even converge with infinitely size because I guess because you're you are making all these U-turns. Like you make progress in one direction, and then you randomly it just turns around and starts going the other way. And so you're kind of like you instead of converging on the 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 parameter value that is suggested by your data, you're just kind of you're you're yeah you're just heading off in the wrong direction all the time yeah you are you're random walking it's that's sort right. of like the death knell of any um monte carlo sampler is um random walk behavior um if you can avoid that and sample um with purpose then you're good and um hmc and uh, nuts are good at that and gibbs sampling in higher dimensions can can um sort of become like a random walk um which is bad. Cool. All right. Yeah. So we talked about uh, <laughs> wind bugs and jags, which you probably don't want to use given this conversation. Stan, obviously a great 
package, if you want to be doing Bayesian stats, uh, you know, it's going to be efficient because it's got C++ under the hood, but you can call it from R or Python in the command line. So it's convenient for a lot of the um, software languages that data scientists are familiar with. Um, another library I know of is PyMC3. Yeah. Um, are, you know, that library or are there any other libraries that you, you feel like deserve an honorable mention as um, a Bayesian stats library people should be looking at? Yeah, I mean, I think um, so. Stan is is wonderful, but it is a um, uh, it's going straight into writing your own Stan code is like jumping into the deep end, and that can be a little scary at first. Um, and um, and so, sort of a good intro to that is um, using a package like uh, BRMS um, uh, and um, or something like R Stan Arm. Um, both of these um, sort of uh, allow the user to use um, more, um, you know, common uh, model specification um, language, like um, like the linear model um, specification language in R, um, the uh, LME4 um, hierarchical spe uh, specification, multi-level model specification. Mm -hmm. And that can be a good introduction to essentially write, you know, um, write a model like you might using a package in R, uh, but still be able to get the benefits of, of sampling um, with Stan. Wow. Okay. Amazing. So, Rob, you have given us an introduction to Bayesian stats. You have left us with libraries that we can start getting going with Bayesian stats on our own, like BRMS or RStan ARM. So now tell us about applications of Bayesian stats, things we can be doing with Bayesian stats that we couldn't be doing with Frequentist stats or machine learning. And maybe a good place to start with that is your own PhD research. So yeah. we haven't even talked about this on the no. show, but you're doing a PhD. You're doing a PhD. most of the way through it, maybe. Yep, yep. Finger crossed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, at the University of Michigan. And I know that since the pandemic, you have had some research projects focused specifically on COVID. So that could yep. be a particularly yep. cool use case to talk about. Yeah, so um, so back in, back in April, um, when COVID was um, sort of unfolding. Um, April, 2020? 2020, yeah. Right, um, we, I, I'm part of a research group at University of Michigan called EPI, EPI Bayes, EPI Bayes, um, short mm -hmm. for epidemiology or Bayesian epidemiology. Um, right. And so it's, the group is led by John Zellner in the School of Public Health. Um, um, and uh, John is an epidemiologist who does a lot of um, work uh, using Bayesian inference in epidemiology. Um, and uh, early on, um, this group that I'm a part of um, was sort of working with the state of Michigan um, to uh, sort of help understand um, some of the trends in the um, COVID caseload and specifically like the spatial distribution of, um, of COVID cases in Michigan. So, and um, spatial distribution, we're not talking about the uh, high dimensional 
<laughs> probability oh, distributions. Yeah, you mean, mean where in the state? Where? Yeah, where in the state? Yes. Very. Yeah, yes, are we having? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I just, it, yeah. Just is it in Detroit yeah. or is it in Grand Rapids? Um, right. And so, um, so we started getting um, sort of line level um, case data from the state of Michigan, um, and uh, I was involved in sort of writing some of the R code. I mean, this is very sort of like low level, just data processing, um, cleaning the data, um, you know, uh, binning by um, census tract and um, uh, public use microdata areas, um, stuff like that. Uh, and, um, and so we, we essentially put together this website called um, covidmapping.org, which shows, you know, an up-to-date map of the state of Michigan and sort of rates of disease, um, you know, across the state. Um, and at some point in our um, uh, investigation of the data, um, we noticed that uh, race um, and ethnicity was missing in a lot of um, COVID cases. And this is not specific to Michigan. This is a problem um, across the US. Um, there have been, I think there was an Atlantic article about um, you know, how uh, race and ethnicity data was often incomplete um, with the COVID cases. Um, and so there are naturally um, questions that people want to ask about um, are there disparities in COVID-19 incidents um, by race and ethnicity? And um, that is stymied naturally by missing race data um, mm -hmm. because um, if it turns out that um, one race um, has more missing data, um, like the rate of missing data is higher um, right. for that race compared to another race, Right. Then when you take the ratio of these two um, rates of disease, you'll get the wrong answer. Mm -hmm. um, and it's one of these very tough missing data problems um, where, you know, we have reason to suspect that the value of um, the missing data um, uh, point, um, the race of a COVID, of a case patient, COVID-19 case patient, um, uh, that the, the probability that that observation is missing, um, a race might be dependent on the race of the, uh, the case patient, uh, for a few different reasons. Um, uh, the missingness is sort of driven by, um, you know, um, non-response when people get a COVID test. Um, you know, if you've gotten a COVID test, you will know that they'll ask for your race when you fill things out. It can be missing due to um, just mistakes in data um, handling after um, a COVID case is essentially a, a case is recorded in the lab and then sent to the state mm -hmm. um, as part of its surveillance program. Um, and so the research question became, how do you accurately quantify um, race and ethnicity disparities in COVID-19 incidents with missing race data? Um, and um, and I should say, like, this is just one in many um, potential biases in, in the data. Um, mm -hmm. And something that we don't touch and won't touch is the fact that um, 
testing rates. Um, you know, we're just working with confirmed, like PCR um, confirmed COVID nineteen cases, and um, we don't have a way of um, correcting for testing bias um, with the sort of case data. Um, uh, though there are efforts um, to help um, understand that bias a little bit better within the group. Um, so, um, so essentially that this, we have this missing data problem and we have a, it's, it's a, um, it's the sort of the missing data problem of the worst kind that, uh, yeah. And you were saying that, uh, dealing with missing data has been something that has been a focus of yours for a long time now. Yeah. I mean, really Ben Goodrich, shout out to Ben Goodrich, um, taking this class at Columbia really changed the way that I thought about, um, missing data. Um, uh, so, um, so yeah, so, uh, the, the sort of challenge was to come up with a method to help deal with, deal with this missing race data. So we, um, uh, have a sort of model, um, that it turns out if you sort of, um, use, uh, census data, um, census, like population data from the census, um, you can, um, you can learn, um, these, uh, essentially like these two different quantities, which are like the rate of disease, um, by race and the missingness, the proportion of missingness by race. That's the proportion of missing race data by race. Um, and, uh, and so the sort of the reason that we end up using Bayesian inference in this problem is that, um, the, uh, if we're, we're trying to describe this missing data process, process that leads to the missing data and the, the disease process, it um, becomes pretty high dimensional because um, we have, um, you know, the, the data have spatial information attached to them. That's how we use, that's how we're able to sort of marry it with um, census data. Um, and, um, and so, you know, we think that um, rates of disease are, are local. Um, they're driven by local transmission, missingness, might be local, it might be, um, you know, a higher level or like a county level. Um, and so, um, so the model becomes very high dimensional very quickly. Um, and, uh, and so we also have good prior information about, um, some of the parameter values. And so like all of this sort of combines to make Bayesian inference, you know, a, a good way to attack the problem. Um, Something that I didn't mention earlier, but might now is that um, it is very hard to um, uh, to do optimization in high dimensional uh, parameter space, um, and uh, and so sometimes um, you know a uh, a way to um, aid with that is to add add prior information, some way to regularize your your estimates. Uh, okay, I see. Nice. Yeah. So, th- so, so with some kinds of problems like this problem, um, where we're trying to identify the proportion of missing data um, for a particular race, um, this is a it's a it's a complex problem space that we're in parameter space, and so by having some prior information. Um, maybe historical rates of missing data by race or something, you can, um, you can start off 
your algorithm, your Bayesian statistical model with this prior information, and then the model isn't, it doesn't have to search as vast of a space. Yeah. You kind of have this, this region that you think is worth exploring um, mm -hmm. and that might lead to an optimal solution. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Nice. Much better yeah. than my uh, machine learning Bayesian stats parallel. I yeah. So that that is I'm um, working on a paper right now um, that we will submit um, soon uh, with uh, my advisor um, at Michigan, uh, Yang <laughs> Chen. <laughs> well, I'm laughing because I was thinking about so right before the episode, right before we started recording. So something that I always ask guests so that you're yes. aware, listeners, is I always ask guests if there's anything you'd like me to be sure to mention. So guests uh, often have, oh, they have a book that just came out or there's some hiring they're doing, a particular kind of client they're looking for. And for Rob, because he's a PhD student, what we need you to do <laughs> is cite Rob's papers. <laughs> that, would be, that would be great. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, so all of you academics out there, get reading Rob's papers and citing Rob's papers. <laughs> all right. I appreciate the shout out. Uh, yeah. I, um, yeah. So, uh, and, and um, the other author on there is, is John Zellner. Um, we'll submit it soon. You know, maybe it gets accepted. Um, and if it does, uh, um, you'll uh, hopefully have something to, to share with everybody. Yeah, and we need all of our listeners who are reviewers at prominent Bayesian statistical journals to also approve and to to uh, yeah to approve all of Rob's submissions with no errors. No, I, yeah. no I can't imagine that would be a problem. <laughs> I'm sure that happens all the time. Hmm. Um, so nice. All right, so that's a great example of a. Um, of a, of a project that we can tackle really well with Bayesian stats. And I love how it has a social uh, impact as well. That's, that's a nice thing. So what is it like day to day to be doing a PhD in stats? We probably have listeners, I mean, certainly we have listeners who have done PhDs in stats or machine learning or another quantitative discipline or some other discipline, but probably most listeners haven't. And some of them are maybe thinking, would I like to do a PhD? Um, so what's it like to be doing a PhD in stats at a top institution like the University of Michigan? What do you do day to day? Well, it changes by year. Um, mm -hmm. the first couple of years, um, you are, you taking the coursework, um, along with your classmates, your cohort, PhD cohort mates. Um, mm -hmm. and that is, um, exciting. It's hard. Um, uh, this is not the case anymore, but it was the case that you, between your first and second year, you had to take a qualifying exam. Um, mm -hmm. So you you do a year's worth of coursework, and then you have a a test, um, mm -hmm. written test, and a like a take home applied data analysis problem, mm -hmm. um, and you have to pass both of them to continue in the program. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean that was. I'm very happy that the um, the current students don't have to go through that because it was it was very stressful um, oh. to sort of you know go into a situation knowing that this is like existential um, is right. is tough. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, you know so, it's kind of, 
Yeah. So I'm going to interrupt you, and then yeah. I'll let you continue on. Yeah. Uh, you know, explaining what the program's like. But so uh, the graduate program that I did, um, it was what they call a one plus three program. So uh, it was this neuroscience graduate program at Oxford, and the first year was a master's, and we actually had so similar to the kind of thing that you have in the U.S. We had classwork. We had two research projects, but the vast majority of our time was spent doing um, classwork which is a bit unusual in the European system, unlike yeah. the North American system. Um, in the European system, you typically, you go right from an undergrad, which is usually a three-year undergrad, and you go right into, it's often just a three-year PhD um, without this kind of, math, you know, without this year to kind of get familiar with the space. You kind of have to come from the discipline in a way. Yeah. If you want to do a PhD in stats, you probably have to do a bachelor's in stats. Right. So there's so... Some universities are starting to roll out. Some Euro European universities are starting to roll out these kinds of programs. Um, and so mine was this, yeah, so first year was this master's and there were actually, there were 15 of us doing this master's in neuroscience and five of us were on the one plus three program, which meant that we continued on with this PhD afterward. But we did have to pass the master's mm -hmm. <laughs> and it mm -hmm. also had a written test. Yeah, But it's kind of funny because I think we all had this impression that it was really easy going into it. Like, I don't, maybe some people stressed out about it, but um, I didn't. And I don't think a lot of people did. And all you had to do was pass. Like, it didn't matter how, yeah. as long as you passed. And um, uh, yeah, I think everyone got through. So it's kind of, it's interesting Great. that different universities, obviously, you know, universities can do things their own way. Yep. But that at Michigan, it was this like harrowing experience. Yeah. Um, whereas mine was like, eh. I mean, look, I think, I think for some people it was not. Um, the backgrounds of people coming into the PhD program vary. You know well. what? That yeah. actually, and that actually, that's a really, really good point. And so that allows me, so if I do have a listener who is one of those 15 people that did the Masters in Neuroscience with me, I owe you an apology because actually that is, yeah, that's exactly it, is that my undergrad was actually in the area. Yeah, I mean uh, that. So I think that, that there's probably also goes a long way, yeah. Um, but so, yeah, so I think the, I, I mean, honestly, look, the first couple of years were tough, um, because, um, I had gone from industry, um, you know, I was, I was working in the stand on the stand programming language. Um, I worked at a FinTech startup. Yes. Yes. I'm going to interrupt you and give yeah. the audience more background on your sure. background, because this yeah. is interesting in and of itself. Background we'll get, on the background. Yeah. So we're going to get, hmm. we're going to get back into this PhD and what it's like. Um, but so you first did a physics bachelor's degree at Bucknell. Yep. And then yep. you did consulting for three years yep. at a place called mm -hmm. Photon. Yes. And then, uh, you did a master's yep. um, at Columbia as we, as in the social sciences, uh, of quantitative, no, that's the wrong way around. <laughs> it's quantitative methods in the social sciences. I mean, look, it just rolls off the tongue. John. I can't <laughs> believe you didn't get, get it right the first time. This Soxi quant meth course you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, and then after that, you worked at Icentium mm. for a year, um, which was a tech startup in mm. the data science space, financial, yep. financial uh, okay. data science technology kind of thing, which you can go into more detail on. Then you worked with Andrew Gelman, so mm -hmm. at Columbia University, but not as an academic, as a statistician, 
um, you know, as a professional statistician. And then, again, you went back to academia. So you did your undergrad, three years doing consulting, then a master's, and then several years working as a data scientist or a statistician, and then again decided to go back and do a PhD. So, um, yeah, what's going on there? Why would, why would you do that? <laughs> I mean, yeah, so, um, I mean, the first time I went back to school, I mean, I honestly, I just missed, I missed physics. I missed, I missed the sort of math. Um, and uh, I was faced with all these really interesting questions. I mean, most of my drive to go back to academia is driven by problems that I face, um, you know, in the sort of um, uh, industry uh, that just don't have good solutions. And so I want to mm -hmm. go, you know, I want to go study them. And it sometimes, um, depending on where you are, you just don't have the time. You know, there's, there's no time to really um, spend, um, you know, thinking through sort of the best approach. You really need a, you need a solution fast. Um, so um, I... Uh, at Photon, um, I was um, doing a lot of sort of like industry forecasting. Um, I got really interested in um, in econ, microeconomics. Um, and then when I went to Columbia, I ended up taking a stats course. I loved it. I sort of just went all, all the way into stats. Um, and then again, when I was in industry um, at uh, the fintech startup, um, and also, um, uh, I did a bit of consulting as well. Um, you know, there were just problems that everyone faces that just don't have great solutions. One of which is, you know, this, the all important prior invasion stats, like how do you think about the impact that that prior has on your inferences? It's like, how do your assumptions impact the conclusions you draw? Um, which is an, you know, it's an important thing to, um, be able to quantify and it's a, you know, that is a tough, it's a tough problem. It's something that I've done a little bit of research in. Um, uh, and so I was driven by the desire to help um, build tools to help people understand their models better to um, think about, okay, for certain classes of models, what's a good prior to use for this parameter. Um, at the time, I was really interested in Gaussian processes. Um, there's a way to think about neural nets as like a finite um, dimensional approximation to a Gaussian process, which is this infinite dimensional um, probability distribution. Um, hmm. And uh, and so, um, you know, what we were talking about earlier, these um, neural networks are multimodal. Um, Gaussian processes um, can suffer from the same issues, um, and they're multimodal in their in their hyperparameters. Um, uh, and like, if you just think about like a one dimensional, um, function, um, and you want to, it's an unknown function. You want to learn about it. Um, uh, you know, sometimes you'll say, okay, it's linear. And then you'll use like linear regression to learn the function. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, other times you don't know very much about it, but you think it's smooth. Um, or, um, and you think it, um, has, it wiggles a lot. I mean, potentially these are things that you, you think you might know about the function. Gaussian processes are ways to, um, to put priors over functions, um, to learn about the function. And th these like, um, the notions of wiggliness, um, 
and uh, and sort of magnitude. How much does the function oscillate? Um, you know, what's how how big is it from peak to trough, stuff like that. Um, there, uh, the the there are hyperparameters that control the the prior um, and and your Gaussian, the sort of posterior um, for the Gaussian process can be multimodal in these, in these two hyperparameters, the sort of um, the magnitude and the, um, the length scale it's called, um, or the mm-hmm. sort of wavelength, you can think about it. Um, and, uh, and so I wanted to, I want to think about how do you put priors on the hyperparameters? Um, Cause we know it's, it's good to integrate over all the sources of uncertainty um, that uh, might come into a problem. So, um, so that was, that was the drive was like, you know, there's this hard problem and I, I, there's not a lot of great research about it. So, yeah, so it's, yeah, essentially the reason why you've gone back to academia both times was because, yeah, there are these fascinating mathematical topics that you really wanted to dig into in detail. And I think that's a beautiful reason to go back and do a PhD. So, do you think now that you will stay in academia after the PhD or that you'll go back to industry or maybe, maybe that's not a great, I don't know if you no, no, yeah. don't know. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about both options. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there are th- great things about academia. Um, I, I like teaching. Um, and, uh, though I, you know, I hesitate to say that's something that you can't do in industry because you, you do a lot of teaching. Um, uh, and it sort of just dawned on me that that is a, that's an option. Um, uh, I like applied problems. Um, and so I, the, something that I did, um, before I went uh, to grad school, I, I, I enjoyed a lot was, um, we were working with a big publisher, um, that needed to figure out how to price its ebook back catalog. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, we sort of came up with a way to, to do that. Um, and, uh, sort of at its core, it's like a decision problem. And I think in industry, the problems that you're faced with are often of the decision sort. It's like, what do I do with this data? Um, here's a, here's a decision I need to make. I have data. How does that data inform my decision? Um, so I, I like that view a lot. Um, and I don't, I think um, sometimes in academia, you're not doing as much of that sort of decision-making. It's more about the inference. Um, so yeah, that's a long, long way of saying, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, I, um, yeah, I, I think both paths could be, could be very interesting for me. Cool. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. And for sure uh, you, it, I think there's more and more opportunity in disciplines like data science broadly, including being a statistician. I think there is a lot of opportunity to go into industry and still teach and uh, maybe even do research. And certainly, you know, the big tech companies or whatever, they do a huge amount of academic research. And so there are increasingly career options that blend both. And so you don't really have to... um, choose and hopefully that blending ends up being the boast of the best of both worlds instead of the worst of yes. both. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> uh I think that's the idea. Yeah. And uh yeah, I think yeah. I think it can work. 
Okay, so we've digressed now. I ended up getting you to talk about the post-PhD stuff. We didn't even finish explaining what it's like to do a PhD. So we'd gotten through the kind of early years. Um, I think it is typical, uh, you know, whether Michigan now doesn't have that uh, end of first year exam. I think that that kind of thing is still typical at a lot of universities. Um, but then, so I guess after that, then you go into one particular lab and you start to really dig deep into your particular research at that point? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you usually like your summer between your first and second year, you do research. So you've, um, you, you know, pick, um, a professor, um, in your department that you think would be fun to do research with. Um, and you spend the summer doing research. Um, and, uh, that gives you a taste for sort of what they do, um, how they manage, um, things. I mean, that's a big, piece of it is like, do you work well with this other person? Mm -hmm. Um, and after, um, the summer, if you enjoy working with them, you'll often continue to research through, you know, your second year intermittently sort of between coursework or on top of coursework, if, um, if you can do so. Um, and then really your third, your third and fourth years, um, you typically do, um, uh, something called a, a prelim exam, which is like an oral, you're going to, you write a paper, you give a presentation. Um, it's sometimes thought of as like a, um, uh, like a proposal dissertation proposal. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and though it doesn't always function like that, it can often just be, here's a project that you spent a lot of time on and, um, you present, you know, your findings. Um, and, uh, you know, almost everybody passes those. You don't, your advisor doesn't let you go up for it if you're not ready. Um, and then your third, fourth, fifth years, you're, um, doing research. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's typical for, um, stats PhD students to do, um, sort of three projects, three sort of separate projects that you sort of put together into a dissertation, um, mm -hmm. with, uh, sort of a somewhat common thread. Um, it can also be, you can be the opposite where you have, you know, your dissertation of a one topic. Um, uh, but, um, mine will be sort of three sort of, um, yeah, I yeah, think that's separate. more common for sure. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you spend I, my day to day now is spent, um, writing a lot of code, running simulation studies. Um, that's where you know, you, um, you simulate data from, you know, any sort of scenario, um, and you fit your model to these, um, data sets and you sort of see how your model performs, um, in a bunch of different sort of, um, criteria like, um, mean square error, um, coverage, whether or not your sort of posterior intervals or your confidence intervals, if your um, frequentists sort of cover the true, true values that generate the data. Um, and, uh, I do a lot of, you know, working through, um, math problems that are, you know, related to my, my work. Um, and then writing, um, maybe in the last like two weeks have been very heavy, just writing. Um, and, I mean, that has actually been I, something that I, 
have heard, and it hasn't really dawned on me until now, is how important. I mean, obviously, you're like in a PhD to write your dissertation, um, but it's the like pro the writing process. I mean, it just um, can help clarify and um, generate new ideas that you you know mm -hmm. if if um, there's there's something really um, clarifying um, about trying to present your work to other people um, that is sort of unique to writing. I do a lot of presentations um, and uh, writing sort of a different um, uh, different thing compared to that, but it, I've, I've been surprised at how much I enjoy it. Um, and um, so, so it's yeah. Good that you enjoy it. A yeah. lot of people don't. It can right. be the most harrowing part of a PhD. I mean, there's part, um, it's part, part of that, yeah. <laughs> but totally, 100%. I mean, being able to write something there's something about, I don't know if I've been, I don't know if I've ever articulated this before, and I don't know if I will do it particularly well right now off the cuff, but when you write a book or thesis or paper, this document has to capture like this snapshot of everything at once. Like if we have this conversation there's there's opportunities for interjection and going off in particular places and it doesn't have to be kind of like this one solid contiguous piece of a big concept yeah but when you write a paper a book a dissertation it's like from beginning to end it has to have this one particular flow and it has to like you have to be able to you get to page 300 and it's a, and you're like, refer back to page one. Like the whole thing, those hundreds of pages all have to work together contiguously. Yep. And that is a really challenging thing about it. Yep. But as it all starts to come together, it really is a beautiful thing. And it certainly does lead to, you know, more research ideas and where the gaps are in, in what you know and so on. Yeah. Yeah, that's. I think that's a good way to put it. Phew, <laughs> got it. All right, so you know that's awesome. It's you know kind of hearing what you're doing day to day, writing code, simulating data, math problems, uh, teaching, writing papers. Um, yeah, it sounds like a great thing to be doing for somebody who wanted to dig deep into a topic, and yep. is now getting to do it. So. Um, all right, so here's a question that I don't ask a lot of guests, but it's actually one of my favorites to ask. Um, so you've been doing this PhD, you have industry experience, so you, you're aware intimately, probably a lot more so than, than many academics, maybe at any stage, you're aware of how the, the research that you do discovering new things so like things come along like the no u-turn sampler that we talked about that allow problems to be solved with data that just couldn't be solved before deep learning maybe another example in oh, recent yeah. years so these things things come along these data modeling innovations and those happen in the context of this these these continuous exponential changes all around us 
ever cheaper data storage, ever cheaper compute, ever more, ever more abundant sensors all over the place, sensing all different kinds of things and collecting all new kinds of data. Mm -hmm. Interconnectivity, um, the speed of the connectivity between us, uh, you know, and the ability to share you know, through papers in archive, code in GitHub, uh, virtual conferences, in-person conferences, this constant sharing of ideas. Um, so because of all of these factors, technology advances at an exponentially faster pace each year. So is there anything in particular that excites you about the future for you or your offsprings or something that you'd like? I don't know, just some hmm. vision that you see unfolding. Um, yeah, I'm, I think, um, I mean, this is, uh, something that we talk about in the Stan project a lot, um, is, is just that sort of as data sources, um, and computing power grows, so too must the models that, um, you know, we use to understand the world. Um, and, um, I am, I would say I'm excited the prospect of, um, sort of these ever growing, um, uh, I'll say like hybrid models where you have, you know, all this data collection that's going on, um, you know, incurs extra uncertainty. Um, and often there are latent parameters that are, you know, joined together in complicated ways. Um, and, uh, I think we're just sort of at the beginnings of understanding, um, the, potential for models like that and mm -hmm. um and also the ways that we understand those models um and uh i think there's like a lot of interesting work to be done on both on both sides um like the putting together of the models um and inference on them um and um understanding the sort of operating characteristics of these models um uh, you know, I've, we talked a little bit about the COVID-19 research that I'm doing. I mean, the, the sort of, um, core of the model is pretty simple. Um, but it really could be a piece of a much larger model. Um, mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. um, and so I think as we get better about, um, like understanding how to put together these, um, uh, these sorts of tools, um, we should get, you know, have a, a more coherent understanding of the world um, and maybe be able to make better decisions about it. I sort of think that's the key is like, nice. we want to make decisions. Um, so. Yeah. Super, super cool answer, Rob, but I'm afraid it was the wrong one. We were looking for <laughs> flying cars. Flying cars that's it. That's was it. the correct answer. Yeah. Eh, tough one. You would have won a prize. Um, <laughs> So, all right. Um, so do you have a book recommendation for us? So to leave us with, you know, to help people be able to solve the problems of the future as we have, you know, more sensors, more data and build bigger models, more complex models uh, that can make bigger inferences. Uh, you know, Bayesian statistics is going to play a big role in that. I have no doubt. And it's going to play a bigger and bigger role. So, I mean, I'd love a Bayesian stats book recommendation, but any book recommendation you have would be greatly appreciated. 
Okay. Um, I have a few different um, book suggestions. Um, uh, the first um, is... Um, so I think uh, Statistical Rethinking by Richard McElreath um, is uh, just a really good book on statistical modeling and Bayesian inference. Um, uh, I think that's a great place for people to start. Um, once you make your way through that, I think, um, you know, something like um, Bayesian data analysis, um, the third edition by um, Gelman um, and, and others. Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of authors on that, um, on that book. Um, I think it's Gelman, Rubin, Stern, Dunson, Batari. Um, <laughs> I think it's fine. Um, <laughs> I think we'll find it. We'll be able to find it. If you give us uh, one more author name. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, no, no, I don't. I, no, I, I'm going to say, oh, so okay. I'm like, um, and I think, I think the stand manual is very good. Um, it is mm. book length. Um, and it's about, you can you can open up the manual and look at the sort of model classes um, to get a sense for how these sorts of models are written in Stan. Um, Non-stats book recommendation. Um, I will go with, um, I've been reading a lot of Eric Larson recently. Um, and uh, so I, I recently finished Dead Wake and um, The Splendid and the Vile, both of which I loved. Um, and um, it's just a, you know, fun book to read um uh yeah so i would recommend nice. everybody check those great out. recommendations um for Bayesian stats books and uh fiction books i guess eric larson well they're uh, uh, they're, they're i think they're they're gonna be in the history section um uh, uh and but they're you know it's um, it's a book that sort of makes history come alive um he does very deep research about um, usually like a single historical event. Um, and he follows a bunch of different characters, some of whom are pretty marginal, um, but for whom he has usually like a lot of correspondence, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like primary source material, and then wow. sort of puts them in context. And so the Dead Wake is about the sinking of the Lusitania, um, and oh. Splendid in the Vile is about the first year that Winston Churchill is in office. Um, and how he sort of navigated, um, you know, the very beginning of, of World War II. Wow. It's they're they're both great books. Um, worth checking. Super out. cool. Yeah, I was unfamiliar with them, and I now need to apologize for suggesting that they're fiction. <laughs> That's okay. All right. So, final question, Rob. Sure. It's been an epic episode. Yeah. I'm sure viewers now know that you are a endless spring of useful information. So how can they follow you? How can they stay up to date on your latest? Um, so I have a uh, Twitter handle. I have a, a Google Scholar page. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, um, and um, yeah, my LinkedIn, I think, is, is a good um, good way to find me and get in touch. Um, nice. If people yeah. are interested. Um, yeah. 
And if people want to do a stand workshop with you in the future, yep. it sounds like the best way to do that is to subscribe to something like Jared Lander's Lander Analytics mm -hmm. uh, newsletter yep. and or his Open Statistical Programming Meetup, which is how I uh, had your name come across my screen in the last few months. Um, so great. Yeah. Awesome. Rob, this has been such an amazing conversation. I hope we'll have the chance to do it again sometime on the show. Thank you for taking the time and I'll catch you again soon. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was great. Well, I'm pretty sure that was the longest Super Data Science episode yet. Rob and I were having so much fun discussing content I thought you might find interesting that I simply kept the filming session rolling. We covered an absolute ton today, including what Bayesian statistics is, its history, how it differs from frequentist and machine learning approaches to data modeling, and Bayesian stats particular utility when you have prior information that could be helpful in allowing your model to find an optimal solution, such as in the Epibase project Rob's involved with, uh, to model missing ethnicity data associated with the epidemiology of COVID-19. Rob also contrasted the older Gibbs sampler with newer, more efficient Bayesian optimization algorithms like no U-turn sampling or NUTS for short. Rob dug into his favorite open source tools for performing Bayesian inference, including the STAN project that he's contributed heavily to and the BRMS and RSTAN ARM packages that he recommends for folks taking their first Bayesian steps. Rob also gave us an overview of what a PhD in stats is like, why you may want to pursue one yourself if you're passionate about challenging statistical problems, and the post-PhD possibilities that are increasingly blurring the academic and industry realms. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Rob's LinkedIn and Twitter profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 507. That's superdatascience.com slash 507. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd of course greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel. I also encourage you to let me know your thoughts on this episode directly by adding me on LinkedIn or Twitter and then tagging me in a post about it. Since this is a free podcast, if you're looking for a free way to help me out, I'd be very grateful if you left a rating of my book, Deep Learning Illustrated, on Amazon or Goodreads, gave some videos on my personal John Crone YouTube channel a thumbs up, or subscribe to my free, spam-free, and content-rich newsletter on johncrone.com. To support the Super Data Science company that kindly funds the management, editing, and production of this podcast without any annoying third-party ads, you could create a free login to their learning platform at superdatascience.com or consider buying a usually pretty darn cheap Udemy course published by Ligency, a Super Data Science affiliate, such as my own Mathematical Foundations of Machine Learning course. All right. Thanks to Ivana, Jaime, Mario, and JP on the Super Data Science team for managing and producing another incredible, epic episode for us today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks. And I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon. <laughs>